Well, of course, there have been dozens and dozens of folks at Highland who shaped my faith through the years. Becky and I came to Highland as a young married couple in 1981, just before our son Ryan was born. But the one that, the one that really comes to mind today is Glenn Owen. Glenn was a wonderful elder and mentor. He always had time to reassure me and to help build my confidence as I was dealing with issues of life. He was, he was wise and uh, funny. And he was just a, just a good man uh, who really cared about my, me and my young family. One of the things Glenn did uh, was on Saturdays, like once every three or four months, he would have a, a gathering of all the children of Highland on Saturday morning, and he'd buy them all egg and cheese biscuits from McDonald's. He'd bring in hundreds of them, and, and he would spend an hour to an hour and a half teaching the kids about the missionary work that he was doing over in Russia, in the Ukraine. And he'd ask him to pray for him as he would travel, and it was just fascinating to see how the kids ate Glenn up. They just loved it, and I learned uh, the value of the church family from Glenn. He, he would reassure me in a way that I felt like I had a safety net behind me. I felt like I had a uh, some folks who had my back in case, in case uh, I got into some difficulties that I couldn't handle. And I think I learned from Glenn the importance of loving our children. And that's what I wanted to do and want to do as I get a little bit older, uh, is help those who are younger than me to navigate the waters of life and to be faithful and to love their families and to love this church and to love Jesus because that's what Glenn taught me to do. Good morning, Highland. Please stand for the reading of this joyous word from 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By God's great mercy, God has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into the inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who are being protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, even if for now, a little while, you have had to suffer various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold, that though perishable is tested by fire, may be found to be result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Although you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with an indescribable and gracious joy. For you are receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Good morning. My name is Shane Hughes. I am one of the ministers here at Highland. And if you're joining us here today, like David said, perhaps for the first time, or if this is uh, you're back after a while. It's good to have you here. And if you're online, we're glad to have you with, with us as well. Uh, before I jump in, I want to just kind of make two notes. If you, if you turned on the news today, I think you saw 
uh, a report of that shooting in Buffalo. There were 10 people murdered. It appears that the gunman was motivated by uh, racist uh, ideology. It wrote a, a racial slur on the barrel of his gun. And so our hearts and our prayers are with the people of Buffalo right now as we pray that this kind of evil will cease. Uh, you also probably heard this week that Lynn Anderson passed. Uh, if you're newer to Highland, Lynn Anderson was a preacher three back, and he served this church for 20 years, which is an accomplishment as it's on itself, except his reach was much further than just the Highland Church. Uh, he mentored and loved many people, including many ministers that came and followed him. Uh, Lynn was incredibly courageous. He spoke about the grace and mercy of God in a time in our fellowship when that wasn't common nor uh, preferred. But he, he did what he felt God was calling, to, calling him to, and it changed uh, our fellowship for the better. And so we, we mourn alongside the Anderson family, uh, but we also celebrate the life of a man who did a, a lot of good work in the name of Jesus Christ. Would you please join me in prayer? Father God, our, our hearts are heavy for many reasons. Uh, for the loss, senseless loss of life in Buffalo, we pray your presence with those who are grieving. Uh, Father, we pray that churches in that area will be mobilized to react. Father, we pray for evil to stop. The corrupt ideas and ideations that are not of you be snuffed out in the light of day and the truth of your love. Father, we pray for the Anderson family and we grieve as our brother Lynn has passed. But Father, we look forward to the future where we see him again and rejoice beside him around your heavenly throne. And Father, now as we turn our hearts and our minds to your word, I pray that you pour through me the gift of preaching, that I might speak your truth and love to these your people. And it's together that the church says, amen. All right, so as Jeff mentioned a little bit ago, uh, for the last two weeks, we did this very short uh, kind of two-week sermon series on, on generosity and what does it mean to be a generous church. Uh, and equally important to the sermon series was announced made by our elder chair, our chairman of the elders, chairperson of the elders, uh, Brad Crisp. And uh, I want to ask you to check those things out. If you missed the last two weeks, I want you to watch those. And I want to encourage you to have that faithful and thoughtful conversation with whoever it is that you talk to about your budget. Um, what we've seen in the last two weeks is, is a very generous uptick in the offering this year, uh, and we're very grateful for that. And we examined that very closely, and this is, I want to tell you what we found. What we found was not just one person making a sacrificial and generous gift, although that is wonderful when it happens, and we're grateful for when that happens. What we saw was across the board, that's my boy, don't worry about him, if your kid cries during a sermon, I don't care. It can't be any louder than mine is. Um, uh, what we saw was this kind of general thoughtfulness. Uh, people that had been, what I think what they felt was a little bit behind, kind of got caught up in their giving. Some increased incrementally what they were able to give. And let me say on behalf of the leadership of this church, thank you. Uh, thank you for committing to the work that God has called us to do in this place at this time. We're in a season right now where we're, we're just determining our reach. 
We're figuring out how we are going to best meet the, the, uh, the call that God has placed in our lives. And so I want to con- uh, commend you and say thank you for that. But I also want to encourage you that we're not looking for a one-time, very generous gift, although we're grateful for that. We're looking for a sustained, predictable giving so that we can best uh, kind of plan and strategically uh, engage what God is calling us to do in the future. I've, I've entitled this sermon series Sanctuary, and I know that's not a real word, but I can make up words, and that's okay. But I want to help define it for you, right? If you, if you were in a mortuary, you would be in a place for the, the dead. And if you went to Europe and you visit, visited a, a reliquary, that would be a place for relics. Now, you may have never seen a reliquary before, or maybe not even know what a relic is. A relic is, in the Christian tradition, it's some item that has very historical significance. And if you were to tour around Europe, you might find in various cathedrals or churches certain relics. And they might be a part of someone or something famous, like, you know, uh, John the Baptist's knuckle might be a thing that you would want to visit, or a piece of the true cross might be another thing that you want to visit. And, and there is some tradition that puts significant power around these articles. Um, you have to take it kind of with a grain of salt, because in kind of that medieval period, not only was it a, a place of power, but it was also kind of a tourist trap. Um, if you counted up all the knuckles from John the Baptist in Europe, he had had, had like three or four hands. So, you know, take it with a grain of salt. But the reliquary is the place where you put those things. So if a mortuary is a place for the dead and a reliquary is a place for relics, a sanctuary would be a place for the saints. And we're going to be going through, for the next four or five weeks, looking at this, this book, 1 Peter. And in chapter 2, Peter's going to call the believers scattered around what is modern-day Turkey living stones of the temple of God. Living stones. And so you can imagine with me, like, the stack stone that's behind uh, near the baptistry or out in the, on the outside of the building. What if those stones could breathe? What if those stones could move? What if those stones could preach the gospel? Well, you're pretty close to what Paul thinks the church is. You are the saints of God, and you carry the good news wherever you go. And you may say to yourself, well, yeah, you don't know my life, man. I'm not, I'm not much of a saint. That's not really my story. Well, I want you to lean into 1 Peter for the next few weeks. And I want you to see what God is calling you to be. Because I think most of us have in our lives, someone like Dickie told that story about Glenn Owen. Someone who is a living, breathing testament to the power of God. Whether it was Glenn Owen or Lynn Anderson. Or the lives that have come before us and brick by brick built this body around us. Well, in chapter one, Peter has to deal with a slightly different issue, and so that's what we're going to think and talk about today. He's going to talk about the relationship to the, the culture and the powers around it. How does, how does the church relate to this? Because it's clear that wherever, uh, whatever the situation that, that Peter is writing to, they're in some stress. They're, they're feeling persecuted of some sort. 
And so one of the options you have in relationship of the church to the culture around it is to kind of behave like the Amish, either practically or, or philosophically, is that you just kind of shut down, you withdraw to yourselves, and you just kind of do your own thing. And the, the world can go on around you, they can do whatever you want, it's cool, we're just going to do our thing. And so we could behave like the Amish in relationship to the culture around us. That's kind of what the Essenes did in Jesus' time. They went off into the desert and everything was happening around them. They didn't care. They just did their thing. I think on the other side of that spectrum, you could kind of behave like the evangelicals of modern America who are being courted for the power of their votes. Not only are they not disengaging in the culture around them, the culture is trying to entice them into something. That might be similar to the Sadducees in Jesus' time. Well, we don't really know exactly what's happening in modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, when Peter is writing this letter, but we do know that those churches are experiencing persecution. Now, this isn't the kind of persecution that Christians will experience about 150 years later when they're being thrown to lions in the arena, where they're being uh, put to sword or to death or losing their property and businesses. This is a more mild-grade persecution. The reason we think that is that because members of the churches that Peter were writing to, if they were being killed, he probably would have said something about that. But he just kind of talks about trials at these times. Their lives are being made uncomfortable because they've confessed Christ. And they're asking questions like, how is this supposed to work? How am I supposed to be a Christian slave to an unfair and unethical pagan boss? How is it supposed to work? When I give my life to Christ, how am I supposed to remain in this kind of corrupt system with a, with a corrupt master? How am I supposed to be a Christian spouse when my partner is not, and then I have to live with that friction? How am I supposed to be a good Christian neighbor or a friend when those around me are not, and it makes conversation at dinner parties uncomfortable? How's that supposed to work? Jonathan Stormont preached a great sermon series uh, a while back, and he talked about that Christians make the best atheists. Because at the time, in the first century, being a Christian was also, Christians were being accused of being atheists. Not because they didn't believe in God, but because they didn't believe in the pantheon of the Greek and Roman gods. And so they didn't go to the temples, and they didn't go to the parties, and they wouldn't participate in some of the festivals. And so these people said, what do you mean you don't believe in the gods? Are you atheists? And so they had that accusation, but what the reality is, is Christians were trying to figure out how to live in that tension. To believe that Jesus is Lord, to do the right thing with their neighbors, and not fall into some of those behaviors. It's the struggle of doing the right thing at work when your boss wants to fudge numbers or you're tempted to produce results that you didn't really make. How do you handle that? That sounds like something that's real for us. Or the struggle of being uh, the spiritually single in our midst and that friction that happens about conversations around how do we raise our kids or what are, what are you going to do on Sunday mornings. And I want you to know, like, if you are experiencing spiritual singleness, I, I see you. We see you. We see that that is a, a, a friction, an uncomfortableness that, that's real. Or that struggle of low-grade mocking in your field. You have a conversation with someone 
that you work with and they, they, you mention Christianity and they, they might think you're just a little silly or naive or worse. Do you mention it or do you let it lie? I think we've found ourselves right now living very closely to the world that First Peter has written in. I think we can find that, that low-grade, uncomfortable feeling as our culture becomes more and more secularized, we're going to experience that more and more. It's persecution of a sort. Scott McKnight has some great points. He says, that don't, don't trivialize the suffering that Peter is referring to in 1 Peter chapter 1. Because there's a lot of things that we could say, because we don't experience a lot of suffering or, or we don't live in that kind of uncomfortable world that, that, that the original readers, hearers are hearing. And so we try to find like ways to connect. And, and so, you know, Scott McKnight says, you know, don't, don't equate things like the psychological stress of having to study for a test or having to go to work as suffering. That's not the same thing. That's not persecution. It's not the bad luck of having a tire go flat or, 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 or experiencing the natural grief of losing a loved one. That's not persecution. It's not even persecution, and this is going to be hard for some of y'all to hear. It's not even persecution when, like, your team is defeated, when your team loses. That isn't persecution. That's why I root for the Broncos. They never win. That way I'm never sad about it. Um, those are all legitimate experiences of suffering, but that's not what Peter's talking about. And then McKnight adds this little word at the end, and I want to share it with you. He says, lack of suffering, the kind of suffering that happens because you're living in the tension and the friction of holding the gospel in a culture that doesn't accept it, may just mean the lack of nerve on the part of the church to speak a prophetic word to the people around us. And so maybe if you're trying to find that psychological stress or those normal grief experiences or those other places to say, okay, yeah, this is where my persecution lies. Maybe you're reaching because you just don't have the nerve to speak the truth. Those that have ears, let them hear. But what I found myself is that we are in a time when the church and culture conversation is even more important than ever because of the temptation that we're experiencing to bow to the idol of power. I think power is the most tempting and addicting idol. I think that power is spiritual heroin. And I totally get it. I am absolutely 100% guilty of this. I have the temptation for power to make my kids just obey. My wife has been at the women's retreat like many of your wives, and I've been kind of solo parenting for the last, I don't know, 37 hours, and it's been brutal right? It's hard. And last night after a great day, I'm at the end of my rope and all I want to do is have my kids go to sleep, right? I just want them to go to bed so I can have a little bit of peace, just a little bit of quiet. And one of them will not fall asleep. And I tell my child, what I want you to do is obey and close your eyes and shut your mouth and lie still. And I know that if you'll just obey me, you'll fall asleep. I want that power. I want the power to get what I want. Not just with my kids. I want the power to get what I want everywhere, every time. 
And I know sometimes if I just push a little bit harder, if I just put my thumb on that scale, if I just say the right word, if I just make the right influencing moment, I can do that. I want the power to avoid suffering. I think power is expressed as money or influence or the ability to insulate yourself from problematic people or problematic things. But here's the thing. Even if you make others do the behavior you want through the threat of punishment or coercion or law and you haven't changed their hearts, you have done nothing. I can insist and cajole and coerce and threaten my son to make him fall asleep and in the end, if I haven't taught him to love me, I have achieved nothing. I mean, I get what I want. I win that moment, but I lose everything. So power becomes that temptation that woos us away from relying on God, shifting our way, our identity from disciple to something else. And when that happens, it will steal your hope. Because you no longer rely on God to make the connection that you're hoping to make. Instead, you rely on your own will and ability. And if you work hard enough, you can just push it through. And a life with no hope loses joy. And so we have the power to choose. We have the power to choose between power and suffering. And Peter says, if for a little time, we will choose to suffer. Karl Barth was one of the most important theologians of the 20th century. It was at a time where, where uh, most scholars, theologians, and experts in the Bible were, were in a, a season of deconstruction, a season of almost disbelief. And, and he was one of the few that saw the value of, of keeping the word of God whole and full in its, its most important way as the living word in our midst. And he was asked one time by a student, now the setting of this, this story is important because it matters. It was at the University of Chicago, which at the time was kind of the, the center of this deconstruction moment. And he was asked by the student, hey, if you could summarize your theology in one sentence, what would it be? Now, what you have to realize is Karl Barth died before he finished writing his Summa Theologica. His, his like kind of, this is what I think the grand scheme of theology is. You don't measure his summa in pages, you measure it in inches, because it's so long. And so he turns, the student turns to him and says, can you just summarize it in one sentence? And Barth thinks about it for a minute. And he thinks about where he's standing and what that means. And he responds with, well, I think it's a, I think it's a song my mom taught me when I was little. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Barth is making this comment on the nature of suffering, and he insists, we do not believe that if we do not live, uh, we do not believe if we do not live in the neighborhood of Golgotha. We cannot live in the neighborhood of Golgotha without being affected by the shadow of divine judgment, without allowing the shadow to fall on us. 
We cannot, Barthes saying is that belief is shallow, almost to the point that it's unrealistic, unless we live in the place of suffering, unless we live in the neighborhood of Golgotha. If we expect for our Lord to live and experience suffering as part of their life, then we will expect our Lord to to expect us to experience suffering as well. In my own hometown where I was growing up, I know exactly what this looks like. If you lived in the shadow of the dog, the dog food plant, the Purina dog food plant, um, you knew it, right? Like that, that factory defined that whole part of Denver. In fact, if the wind was blowing the wrong way, it affected the whole of Denver. It was the smelliest factory that you ever made. And it, would, it destroyed the value of all of the homes within like a mile radius around it. Because it just stank. Dog food, making dog food stinks. If you lived in that shadow of that neighborhood, then you lived with the stench of the, f- the product. What Barth is saying is that you cannot have belief unless we live with the shadow of the cross on us. If we're not aware. Maybe it's like the Enterprise building here in Abilene. It's kind of that orienting building. If I kind of see where it is, I kind of know where I am, and I can orient myself around it. And, and you can live in the shadow of that building. It, it shapes your neighborhood. Peter wants to remind us, however, is that suffering is not the end of the story, but rather suffering refines faith. Loss reminds us what matters. Losing things reminds us what really matters. I don't know about you, if you ever had that moment where you lost something and then you're you're going through a box or whatever, you pulled out of your closet and you discover this thing and you're like, wow. You know, we never unpacked this box when we moved to Abilene. It's been here three years in this closet. I never, I'd forgot we owned all of this stuff. And you gotta ask yourself the question, if you had it for me three years, didn't need it, did you really lose it? Are you missing it? That's a great box to put at Goodwill, right? Get rid of it. If you lose something and it doesn't matter, then... It helps you realize what you, what you value. Suffering reminds us these are things that matter to us. Peter has a very simple understanding of this. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because God was faithful to the world in resurrecting his son from the dead, we serve a living Lord. We do not serve a God that is dead, but a God that is alive Christ who stands before us. And serving a living Lord leads to living faith. It's not just belief in what we can't see, but the promise and expectation of what God will bring to us. And living faith allows us to have a living hope, a hope that is realistically realistically relying on God to provide what we need. And living hope, living a life where we expect God to share for us, creates joy. And this is what Peter calls an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Things that cannot perish or spoil or fade. We are the sanctuary. We are the place where joy abounds. We are the place where hope remains. We are the living house of a living God. In just a moment, I'm going to invite our prayer partners to come forward. Uh, they want to be available. If you have prayer needs that you, uh, 
that you would like to talk to somebody about, they're going to be available at the end of the service. Would you please stand for our benediction? This week, as you go about your week and you feel the rub of gospel truth against the culture you live in, may you be brave. May you see that as an opportunity to speak truth and to live kindly and to to be a person of light in your world. May you choose to be ethical like Jesus in the way that you treat others, especially those who have no power over you. May you be living stones and build a house that will stand forever. Go in peace.